Revelation 19. We looked at the first part of the chapter last week, so this morning we are going to pick up in verse 11. So Revelation 19, verse 11. John writes, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword from which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him, who was sitting on the horse and against his army, and the beast was captured with it, the false prophet. Who, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. One of the things my wife loves to do when we go to the beach is pick up shells, and she's always doing this. Will had, was in Florida on the Gulf side, just, just outside of Tampa, and we went down there, and there were shells everywhere, and she loved it. Every time we do that, I think of a song. There's, there's a Celtic group called Eden's Bridge, and they do a lot of worship stuff, and they, they do a song... Years and years and years ago, they did a song called Stones and the Sea. It's a beautiful song. And every time we're we're doing that, this song comes to my mind. Because here's the gist of of what they're writing and what they're communicating in this song. The, the, The singer starts by saying that here they were walking on the beach, picking up pebbles and stones and looking. And they were finding precious things. And... They, they, they were just walking around and doing this. And then the wind comes and whispers in their ear, Look, you fool. What are you doing? Why don't you raise your eyes and see the sea? And then, and then, the, then the song goes on, the lyrics of the song. They, they say that they, they'd gathered these precious things. And it was just, you know. And then all of a sudden they grew tired of these precious things. And the precious things grew tired of them. And... What came to their mind again was this, you know, the wind whispering, what are you doing? Why are you wasting your time picking up these 
things when you could raise your eyes and see the glory of the sea. And then the, the lyrics, the, the, the person looks and sees and is overwhelmed by the sea. It's as if they looked for the first time. And they're overwhelmed by the sea. And the sea captures them. And the sea just overwhelms them. The point of the song is this. The sea is God. And we're walking around in life picking up all these things that we call precious. And we're so down here looking and picking and going and saying, i got to have this precious one. Then we get tired of that. And what do we do? Throw it away. Then we get this one. I get tired of and, and, and it's, like, it's like the word of God. It's like the spirit of God comes and says, what are you doing wasting time with that? Look, you fool. Lift your eyes and see the greatness of God. And then when we do, doesn't it overwhelm us? Doesn't it just sort of capture us? Overwhelm us? Life's like that. Even as Christians, we can get into that routine of looking and trying especially when times get tough right i mean a lot of times get tough and we we become preoccupied with trying to hold on and find the precious things and hold on to them and and we fail to look up listen when it comes to the second coming of christ which is what john's dealing with here in this chapter we've made it to this point in the book of revelation as we've been walking through this book and we get to this after the marriage supper the consummation between the relationship between Christ and his church in the first part of chapter 19. Remember, evil has been judged. It's over. Babylon's fallen. Although we're going to see it again in this chapter in connection with the second coming of Christ. But, but as Christians, we can go through life the same way. We can fail to look up and see the victory that's already been won by Christ. When did he win it? On the cross. When he died on the cross... When he died on the cross, was buried and raised the third day and ascended into heaven. He won a great victory then. Paul tells us that he disarmed the principalities. He disarmed. Satan was defeated. The forces of evil were defeated. In fact, you go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis 3.15 and this is what's prophesied. You're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to what? Crush your head. When did he crush his head? When he died on the cross. So in a sense, what we are living in, remember the betrothal period last week and looking at that, we're in that betrothal period right now. That relationship's not been fully consummated, but he's called us to himself and we're living betrothed to him. And in that betrothal period, we are living in a sense what some, they refer to it this way. They say it's like we're living in something that's already happened. What has already happened? The defeat of evil and Satan. But yet there is still a not yet. There's the already and the not yet. Think about our salvation. Already I'm saved, right? I mean, I turned from my sin and turned to Christ and put my faith and trust in Him, the one who died for my sin, the one who was buried, raised the third day, and I come to Him. Already I am saved. And what the Bible talks about and tells us about being justified in the relationship, reconciliation, and all that that happens, but yet there's a not yet. Some have said, it, it, you could talk about it in three tenses. I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. 
The not yet is where we are getting in the book of Revelation. Because not yet, he's not come back yet. And we haven't seen the new heaven and the new earth yet. We haven't entered into our glory, our eternal home yet. There's so much more that awaits us. But the already? Lift up your eyes. Get out of this mess. Quit looking at the virus. Quit looking at elections. Quit looking at cultural demise. And look up. It's all been defeated. The already has happened. And the not yet, it's coming. It's coming. His second coming, the second, the reappearing of Christ. He came the first time. Keep your finger here in Revelation 19. I want you to go back to the book of Hebrews. Go back to the book of Hebrews and go to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, the very end of the chapter. This is what we read, verse 27. Last two verses of chapter 9. The writer's been talking about this redemption that we have in Christ through his blood. Then verse 27 it says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes what? Judgment. I mean, everybody's going to die unless Christ comes back. But we're going to die. We all live under a sentence of death. It's just a matter of when it's going to be carried out. Okay? So, then listen to verse 28. So, it's appointed for us to die, for man to die once and then the judgment. So, Christ has been offered how many times? Once. When was he offered? He was offered at his first appearing. He came to die on a cross, right? All right, follow what the author saying. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, to bear our sins. He didn't die for his sins. He didn't die for his guilt. He died for our sins. Now, watch this. Will appear a second time. So he came the first time, and then there's going to be a reappearance. He will appear a second time, not to deal with sin. Now, what does he mean? What he means by not to deal with sin is he died once. He's not coming back to die. He's going to deal with sin, but not by dying on a cross. He did that once. He was, the, he was the perfect sacrifice. He doesn't need to come offer himself again. It's not like he made a mistake or that somehow God's going to say, well, gee, that wasn't enough. I need another one. So we're going to send him again and again. And again. That was old covenant stuff. The priest went in yearly over and over and made continual sacrifices until the one came that was the perfect sacrifice. And what happened? He died once. He was raised the third day, he ascended into heaven, and he's waiting. Where is he? He's seated at the right hand of God, and he's waiting. Waiting for what? Because he is going to reappear again. He's going to come back here. We're going to see him. And so, he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. 
Do you hear that? Oh, we, we, we want Him to come. Yes, come. Are you eagerly waiting for Him? Miss the question. Am I really eagerly waiting for Him? He's coming back. He's coming back. See, the second coming of Christ is one of the fundamental cardinal doctrines of a Christian worldview. Because if you deny the second coming of Christ, and you say, well, he's not coming back. In fact, they mock it. People mock it today. They were mocking it in the first century. This is why Peter writes in 1 Peter 3. Some, some say, where is the? It's been all these years. He hasn't come back. And, 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 and what is God? This, this problem. You Christians are foolish in believing in this kind of stuff. This is hocus pocus stuff. This is mythology stuff. Come on. You need science. You don't need to hang on to this kind of stuff about Christ coming back. And so they mock it. They mocked it then. They mock, they mock it today. And Peter says, God's not slack concerning his promises. If he says he's coming back, then guess what? He's coming back. And time doesn't matter to God. God exists outside of time. He's not bound by time. So that's why a thousand years, you see, as one day. He's not bound by time. So they can mock all they want to. And guess what we're going to do as believers? We're going to believe it by faith and we're going to keep eagerly waiting. And it may be another thousand years. It may be our great, 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 great grandkids that see him. But even if we die now, because remember it's appointed to die once, guess where we're going? We're going to be with him. I mean, what better, what better situation could we be in as believers? We die now, we're going to go be with him. If we're alive when he comes back, guess what? We're going to see him. Regardless of what happens, we will be with him. You see, that's the not yet. But it's promised and it's going to happen. It is going to happen. God is not slack concerning His promises. Christ reappearing will happen. Right now is the betrothal. The consummation is coming. So what should we be doing? Eagerly waiting, right? Okay, but there's another question we've got to ask. How? How do I eagerly Wait. Isn't that the next question to ask? I get eagerly wait. Okay, but then what does that look like? Well, first, before we get to that question, John's going to lay out here. He's laying out for us two facts. And one is the victorious reappearing of Christ. And the other is the defeat of Satan. And, and he's going to go into this again. We've already seen this. We've already seen it play out. 17, 18, 16, the, the, uh, the bold judgments in 17, and then 18, the culmination of that, the Babylon's fallen, she's fallen, it's over, it's done, Satan's defeated, evil's defeated. But we get to see again a picture of this victory being executed. And it's connected with the second coming of Christ. So the first fact that he establishes, that he lays out, is that Christ is coming. Now, we, we've interacted, we've talked about there's, there's, there's several legitimate views about the second coming of Christ as far as the timing. This is what we know for sure. And I've told you, as we've gone through this, and, and, and in a couple of Wednesday nights we've looked at it and so forth and looked at some of these views, but this is what I know for sure. This is what I will die for. 
All right. A lot of it, you know, do we go through the tribulation? Do we not go through the tribulation? Does he come before the millennium, after the millennium? You know, all that. I, a lot of that I won't die for. But I will die for this. Christ will physically, bodily, visibly return to this earth. He's coming back. He said he was coming back. God shows us in his word the promise of his return. As far as, you know, a lot of the things that surround it, I don't know. I don't know. But I do know he's coming back. And I do know it's going to be a physical bodily return. He's not going to come by, sneak back in as a ghost or come as a spirit. He's coming physically bodily to this earth. So that is one of the fundamental cardinal doctrines of a Christian worldview, along with the doctrine of God and man and Christ and salvation and so forth. So in other words, what I'm saying is you deny that, you've stepped outside a Christian worldview. You deny that, you say that's not happening, that can't be a part of it, then everything else starts to fall. Because if that's not true, then how can we believe him about anything else, right? It all holds together. All right, so we're eagerly waiting. How do we do this? Well, here's the first thing that he shows, the first fact, and that is the establishing, the second coming of Christ in Revelation 19. And this is what he says, this victorious return of Christ, the first thing. Verse 11, John says, Then I saw heaven opened. He sees heaven opened up. Now, this language we've seen already. We've already seen this language. In chapter 4, verse 1, there was a door opened. Remember that all the way back in chapter 4? In chapter 11, verse 19, the temple opened. Now what John says is, I saw heaven itself opened up. And what came out? What did he see as it was opened? And behold, a white horse. This is not the first seal horse. You remember the first seal in Revelation 6, the white horse. That's, this is not the same horse. Now obviously, the symbolic language here, white horse, means what? Victory. You're coming on a white horse, you're coming as conqueror. You're coming, and his name, as we'll see later, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. This is a victorious return. He's riding, and, and what John sees is, behold, a white horse. And then here comes this description. The one sitting on this horse is called faithful and true. The only one who's truly faithful, the only one who is truly true is the Lord Jesus Christ. This can't be man. This can't be some earthly king. This can't be man at all because man's not faithful and true. Christ is faithful and true. So he sees this and the one sitting on this, this is Christ in this description. He's faithful and true. And in righteousness, in righteousness, he's doing two things. He's judging. He's coming back. He's going to judge. And he's making war. Now that bothers some people sometimes when they think about Christ and they think about especially like, well, God is love, right? I mean, if he's a loving savior, what is he doing coming back and judging and making war? Well, we're going to take Christ the way he's been revealed to us in the scripture. We don't pick and choose what we like about him because when we do that, we create an idol, don't we? So if I say, well, I just want a loving Savior. I don't want the Savior who's going to come back and be this judge and make war. No, well, you've created an idol and you've stepped outside of Christianity. You've stepped outside what the Bible's revealed about Christ and you're in danger because you're worshiping an idol. 
This is the way He's revealed. He comes, and when He comes, He's judging and He's making war. And go on with this description as He goes on. He says, His eyes are like a flame of fire. We've seen this already, chapter 1. His eyes like a flame of fire. Is it vengeance? Is it judgment? Is it this, this just raw power in his eyes. We've already seen this description of him in Revelation 1. So his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head were many diadems. Do you remember Babylon? You remember the kings? You remember they had seven crowns, ten crowns? Well, guess what? On his head, it doesn't say seven or ten. There's many. He's way above these earthly kings. Many. I don't know if it's many if the language is such that there's so many you can't count them. No, this is how great he is. I don't know if that's the language. But on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. If anyone tells you they know the name, run from them. John says no one knows this name that's written but Christ. He's the only one that knows it. So this description, notice it goes further. It talks about his clothes. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Is it his blood? Every time we see clothing and we see this language of clothing washed in the blood, it's always the blood of the lamb, right? I mean, this, this white raiment that we have, that we've received, that, that, that we've overcome him by the blood of the lamb, it's always about... This blood is always His blood. It's what we're washed in. It's what our robes are washed in. Is it that? Or is it the blood of the ones He's coming to judge? He's about to tread a wine press. A lot of this language is loosely tied to Isaiah 63. The wine press. We've already seen the wine press in chapter 14. When He comes in that, 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 that horrible scene of hell in chapter 14. So is it His blood? Is it the blood of His enemies? Notice this, he, he, his, his clothes, his robe is dipped in blood and, and the name by which he is called, what is it? The Word of God. John 1. In the beginning was the what? Word. The Word of God. This is his name. This can only apply to Christ, you see? This can't be some angel. This can't be some other heavenly being. All of this description can only apply to the Lord Jesus Christ. Who's coming back? Who's riding the white horse? It is Christ. And notice this. Notice what's with him. Verse 14. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, and white and pure, were following him. And what are they on? They're on white horses. You see, they're coming, and they're coming as conquerors. They're coming victorious. Now, I, I just need to mention the armies here as this angel's. Is this the angels that are coming with him? Others have said, no, this, this, this may be believers. Then what believers? Is it all the believers that are coming with him? Is it just those who have been martyred that are coming with him? Is this just tribulation saints that are coming with him? I tend to lean a little bit towards the fact that it's the angels that are with him. When you look at Acts chapter 1, he's taken up into heaven and the angels are there. They're in white raiment. And they say to them, why are you standing here with your mouths wide open? And it says in Acts 1, he was taken up into the clouds, which may very well be a reference to the angels taking him up. And the angels say, why are you standing here with your mouths wide open? When he comes back, he's coming back in the same manner. 
Could the same manner be that he's coming back with the angels just like the angels took him up? Here he comes with his angels. And guess what? These angels are on white horses. He's leading them. But notice they have no weapons here and they do nothing. It is only the Lord Jesus Christ that comes and fights the battle. And he does it with his word. That's how powerful he is. I mean, this is a powerful image that's being portrayed to us here. In fact, Jude, Jude talks about how Christ, how he's going to come back. And when he comes back, he he says, Enoch prophesied about this. Behold, he comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to do what? To execute judgment on all and to convict all of the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and also of the harsh things ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Who's he coming with? He's coming with his angels. And this is what he's going to do. So I lean towards the fact that the army here are his angels. They're coming with him. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword. We've seen this before, too. With which to strike down the nations. He's going to strike down the nations. And he's going to rule them with a rod of iron. This language seems to come out of Isaiah 11, Psalm 2, where it talks about in verse 9, he rules the nations with a rod of iron. And then he will tread the winepress of the fury of of the wrath of God the Almighty. He's going to crank out this winepress. You remember the image of the winepress in 14? How they would throw the grapes in and they would trot it, they would press the grapes and the juice would flow and they would make the wine. Only thing is that in 14 and this wine press, it's not grapes, it's actually humans. And he's going to trample under his feet the enemies. You remember 14 talking about how deep the blood was going to be? The gruesome. When he comes, he's going to tread this wine press of the fury of the wrath of God. The Almighty, the only one who's Almighty. And then also, verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name. And what's the name that's written? King of kings and Lord of lords. You see, this can only be the Lord Jesus Christ. So John's establishing the fact he's coming. And when he comes, here's a description. Here's here's who's going to be with him. And what's he going to do? He's coming to judge and he's coming to make war. You see, this is why the writer of Hebrews says he's not coming to deal with sin. He's coming to set things right. He's coming to set things right. He's coming to claim what's his. He's coming to rescue his bride, his betrothed. He's going to come rescue her. Babylon's going to be judged and Babylon's fallen and in steps into history. At some point in time in history. And I think it's an important point to understand. God invaded history once before. When did he do that? In the birth of Christ. The first advent. He is going to invade history again. But not to be born of a virgin. Not to be born in a manger. You see, one of the things, we're we're leading into Christmas, right? We're leading into the celebration of the birth of Christ. And you see how humble his first coming was? Do you see how what such humble circumstances he came? 
There wasn't even room for him in an inn. He was born in a stable. I mean, you see the humility of his first coming. It's almost as if, one writer said, it's almost as if he came sort of privately. Do you see the circumstances in which he's coming again? You see, I think this is why Paul would say, every knee will do what? Bow. Every tongue will do what? Confess. Believer or unbeliever? When he comes back, that's it. Now, he gives the second fact here, this this description, another description of the fall of Babylon. And we've seen this, a lot of this we've already dealt with. Verse 17, that I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. And what's he saying? He's saying, come gather for the great supper of God. Come gather. There's going to be this great supper. Now, there's contrast. As we get to the end, as I've told you, there's some contrast going on here. Remember the two ladies? The prostitute, Babylon, and the bride. There's going to be a contrast of cities. The city of Babylon and the new heaven and the new earth. There's a contrast of feast here. I think, it's, I think the language is put this way because where does the chapter start? It starts with a great feast. What great feast? The marriage supper of the Lamb. You see that great feast where we're joined with Christ? There's the invitation to come to that. And then here's the invitation to these birds. You ever seen vultures gather? You ever seen them gather around over a carcass and circle and swarm and so forth? They're being called to gather to another supper. You don't want to be at this supper. Because if you're at this supper, you're the main course. And the image here is gruesome. He's calling them to come together for this great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave. None will escape. Both small and great, none will escape. None of the unbelievers will escape. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who is in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Now we've already been introduced to the beast, chapter 13 in the false prophet. This is the defeat of Satan. This is just another description of the defeat of Satan. It's going to happen. In fact, as I said earlier, he's already defeated. This is just a victory executed here. And the language is strong here. Because when it gets to that point, alive is the first word of that sentence. Alive they're going to be thrown in. As if it's emphasized. It's one thing to say, line them up and put them in front of a firing squad and then throw them in. I think it's another thing to say, they're going to be cast in alive. The severity of the judgment that's coming. Satan's defeated, the forces of evil defeated, the beast is defeated, the Antichrist, the false prophet, they're defeated. They're thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So what are the rest going to do? Just go, man, wow. Well, that's pretty stupid following those guys, wasn't it? Oh, well, let's just get on with our lives. No, it's not what's going to happen because you see 21, here's what happens to the rest. 
and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him. Remember the description? You see, he just just speaks. Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 8 talks about how he's destroying with just his breath. I mean, think about it. If he spoke things into existence, don't you think when he comes back that he can speak things out of existence? It's just the power of his word. And they're slain by the sword that came from his mouth, from him who was sitting on the horse. And then listen to this. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. They were stuffed. They were gorged. The language is not just a snack. The language is this is a full course meal being offered up and they are gorging themselves. This is gruesome. This is the judgment. He's coming to judge and he's coming to make war. This is what he's coming to do. God is not slack concerning his promises. Christ will reappear. And if you're not with him, you're in trouble. If you're not with him, you're in trouble. You're in deep trouble. The consummation's coming. The betrothal's coming to an end. What should we be doing? What did we see in the first place? What did Hebrews say? Waiting what? Eagerly. Okay, so how? What in the world does that look like? First, there are a couple things I need to say in connection with the second coming. Okay, we just need to lay some groundwork here first. The first thing I need to say is that when it comes to the second coming, the time is unknown. We don't know. We, we may can see signs and we can may think, you know, when we start seeing certain things, then we, we start thinking, well, is it near? Is it near? Every generation has had that. But the thing is, we don't know. The timing is unknown. I mean, Jesus made a statement to that effect, didn't he? I mean, no one knows. He said, not even the angels know. I don't even know. Only my father, what, knows. He made that statement. In Luke chapter 12, verse 40, he says, it's coming in an hour you don't expect. It's coming in an hour you don't expect. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, Paul uses the language of a thief, doesn't he? It's coming as a thief in the night. In fact, look back at chapter 16. Revelation 16. You remember that little breakthrough? And it's in the midst of all this judgment that's being poured out. And then all of a sudden we had this breakthrough where Jesus in verse 15 says, Behold, I'm coming like a what? Thief. Now, a thief does not text you and say, I'm coming tonight, 10 o'clock. You want to put the dog up? And it's not that, that, that it's not the sneakiness of the coming that's being conveyed here. It's not that. It's the unexpectedness of it. That's it, you see? It's the unexpectedness of it. Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Coming as a thief. Yet, here's the second thing in connection with this. Yet. It's spoken of, his coming is spoken of as being near. I mean, all the way back in the first century, the writers are talking about it as as, as, as near. 
I mean, they use language like the judge is at the hand, the Lord is at the door, and so forth. They use this language over and over. Philippians 4 verse 5, Paul says, the Lord is at hand. It's near. It's near. Hebrews chapter 10, he's, he's talking about it's, it's, it's a little while. This language is used. James chapter 5, he's, he's, he's at the door. He, the judge is at hand. The judge is at the door. He's there. You remember all the way back in Revelation chapter 3? In chapter 3, this is what he says to the church at Philadelphia in verse 11. This church is being persecuted. He says, I am coming soon. Hold on. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Hang in there. I'm coming. So we don't know, but yet there's language here of how the nearness of the coming. And then the mockers and the scoffers come along and say, yeah, but it's been thousands of years since these words were said. Jesus was mistaken. There was a group of theologians early on who said, looked at the Bible and said, you can't trust the Bible because they taught like this and it didn't happen, so they were wrong. That's totally to misunderstand the Bible. It's totally to misunderstand God. Again, God's not slack concerning his promises. It is near. God's not bound by time. It is near. And what will happen when he comes? We've already seen this in chapter 19, haven't we? He's coming to judge. He's coming to make war. He's not coming to die for sin. He says, don't be deceived, Jesus tells us. Don't be deceived about these things. How in the world do we eagerly wait? I think John gives us a hint in 1 John. I want you to go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. This is a passage that's caused me lots of thinking, mental power, trying to wrestle with exactly what is John saying here. And I've thought about it over, over the years and trying to, to, to really get a grip on what he means by this. And there may be some connection here with waiting eagerly and his second coming. And so, although there is a there's a connection with his second coming, but this is what he says at the end of chapter two. First John chapter two. John says, "And now, little children, his favorite term, my little born again ones." That's what he calls Christians. He loves that term. So, my little children. Now, you see this next phrase: abide. In him. All right, hang on to that. Where would John have gotten that language? He got it from Christ. Right? Abide in me. Without me, you can do what? Nothing. This abiding language. He deals with it earlier in the book. And in chapter 1, he talks about this abiding. If you say you abide in him, then you ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So now little children abide in him so that when he, what? Appears. What in the world is John talking about? He's got to be talking about the second coming, right? So abide in him so that when he appears, we... He's talking about Christians here. We may have confidence 
and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. See, this is what bothered me. How in the world would a Christian shrink back in shame at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, if we're not eagerly waiting, you see, it may mean something like this. If we're not eagerly waiting, and we're, go back to what I started with in the beginning, and we're walking around picking up what we consider to be precious things, and we're wasting our time with the things of the world, and we're so wrapped up in the world. You remember, you remember the fall in chapter 18 of Babylon? You remember what the call was? Come out of what? Come out of her! We're so wrapped up in it. We're so wrapped up in the world. We're so wrapped up in Babylon. Maybe, there, maybe there's a thought here of also possibly being deceived. We've talked about this. Maybe there's this deception that's happened. I think I abide in him, but I really don't. I, 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 I think I do. I said the prayers. I do the things. I, I you know. But still a heart that craves your sin. Is that abiding? I don't, there may be several things going on here with what John's saying. So, so maybe I'm so wrapped up in my own life and my own things, I'm not eagerly waiting. If you ask me if I believed he's coming, yeah, I'd say, yeah, I believe he's coming. Has it impacted your life in any way? Well, not really. Not really. What if you're wrapped up in some sin? What if you're wrapped up in some sin and it's got a grip on you and you, 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 you want to get rid of it? You're, you're a genuine believer, but it's got a hold on you. And you give in to it and you give in to it and you give in to it and you're not walking in the Spirit. You're not taking the Word of God. You're not taking what God has provided for you to be free from that. And you're worshiping that sin and not God. And you're trapped. You're just caught up in this mess and, 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 and you refuse to repent. Now, I think if you're a genuine believer, sooner or later you're going to come around because God's going to discipline you. He's going to spank your britches until he straightens you out. But what if you're so involved in some particular pet sin of yours? And you are a believer. And there he is. You're going to be ashamed? Oh, my Lord. My Lord, I didn't want you to see me like this. Well, let me let you in on a little secret. He already knows. He already sees you like that. And if this isn't a motivating factor for you to come out of that Babylon, for you to come out of that, if this thought is not a motivating factor enough, then maybe you are deceived as to whether or not you're a Christian. He knows, he sees, and he still loves you. That should be motivating factor enough to bring you out of whatever mess this world could wrap you up in. 
Maybe all this is going on with what John's saying. My little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. What's clear is he has in mind the second coming of Christ. And then he says this, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. I think, I think possibly... And taking this passage, this verse in 28, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, and, and eagerly waiting for him. How do I eagerly wait for him? I abide in him every single day. And if I'm abiding in him, now we could go and I could list a whole bunch of things of what that would look like. But I will tell you there's some very basics. I'm praying and I'm reading my Bible, and I'm worshiping, and I'm loving God and loving other people, and I'm not pursuing the things of this world. That's what it is to abide in Him. In other words, I am pursuing Him. But here's the kicker. I am pursuing Him no matter the circumstances. Because I think in the context of 1 John, what may be behind this not being ashamed is that when it gets tough, I don't throw in the towel. I don't quit. I keep persevering. I keep persevering. I'm going to keep following. I'm going to keep obeying. I may not understand it all. I may not think I have reason for it all other than just to simply say, you know what, he's called me to live by faith, right? And so I'm going to keep, I'm going, to keep going. Word, his word, the spirit. You see, I'm going to look, stop gathering, wasting time with these little precious things. And some of them are, are good in themselves. It's, it's, and I'm going to look up. Right now, look up. It's tough right now. It's tough. But, you know, you know we got brothers and sisters around the world who, are, who have been in tough situations. They're going through it. And they're not quitting. They're not quitting. It's tough right now. And it may get tougher. I don't know. I pray not, but it may get tougher. I don't know. But I know this. He will reappear. And if I don't want to be ashamed when He reappears... I better be abiding in Him. Not shrinking back. Not pulling back. And not even contemplating giving it all up and joining the world. Come out of her. And there's a Savior. And his name, the Word of God. 
King of kings, Lord of lords. You can see Him right now. You can see Him right now in His Word. There He is. And what does He say? He says, come to Me. Turn from your sin. Trust Me. Come to Me. And maybe for the first time in your life, you've seen Him. There He is. And you see Him as your Savior. Grab Him. Grab Him and hold on to Him. There's not another one coming. And then we're going to eagerly await. We're going to eagerly await. You know, we sing the hymn, He's coming, He's coming, He's coming soon. What if it were today? What if it were today? When you leave here, clean up whatever you got to clean up. Because what if it were today?